0: Good morning, everyone. I am so happy to be speaking to you today. If you don't know who I am, my name is Caleb, and I've been working here at Grace since last November. When I worked with Paul to pick a date to preach many months ago, I certainly didn't envision that this would be how I'd be doing it. But here we are. I'll be continuing in the series that Paul has started, How Jacob Became Israel, and he'll be back with you next week. Even though this time hasn't been what any of us have planned, I do hope you all have been able to enjoy the lovely summer weather uh, in whatever way you can, and at least have some kind of break from the normal routine. Over the last few months, my wife Sarah and I have had the pleasure of recording Sunday School messages for the Kids of Grace. So if you are someone who watches those with your kids each week, I apologize that you have to hear my voice twice today. But one of the things that we have often told the kids to do is to look for God sightings, or ways we can see or feel God, such as the beautiful weather, so I'd encourage you all, big kids, to do the same today, too. I have a question for you this morning. Have you heard the term triskaidekaphobia? Well, weirdly enough, this is a term for a pretty common fear, one that I don't quite understand, which is the fear of the number 13. Maybe you've heard of that, but what about palatophobia? Well, that is the term for the fear of baldness or bald people. But you didn't know that. What about chetophobia? This is the fear of hairy people. Levophobia is a term that is for a fear of objects on the left side of the body, and dextrophobia is for a fear of objects on the right side of the body. The means a fear of being seated. Stabisophobia is a fear of standing or walking. Porphyrophobia is a fear of the color purple, Auroraphobia is not a fear of the town where I live, but rather of the northern lights. Aerophobia is a fear of drafts, And one that I find pretty funny is caliprophobia, is a fear of obscure meanings, which might be applicable here. And lastly, can you guess what phobophobia is? Well, it is a fear of being afraid. Pretty funny. And believe it or not, there are dozens and dozens of more terms to describe various obscure topics people can have a fear of. Maybe if you're a psychologist or a counselor, it helps to have a bunch of different technical terms to refer to different fears. But practically speaking, they all mean essentially the same thing, right? They indicate we are putting too much of our efforts and energies into things which we fear. This isn't to delegitimize the little things which make us afraid on a daily basis because that's just a part of being human but the big, large, looming things, the things that wake us up at night, that bring us anxiety, that cripple us in our faith and in our lives. These are fears that need to be addressed. When we look at Jacob's life, we can already see that there is a pattern. From the first second, we know Jacob. We know that he is a schemer. He is a heel grabber, an inheritance swindler, and someone who gets his way through manipulation. What we haven't seen yet brought to light is that, largely because of this, he is also someone with deep-seated, heavily-rooted fears. Even though in many ways it almost seems like he gets away with what he does and is rewarded with it, in a tale as old as time, his past comes back to bite him. The truth is that no one can function for very long with burning bridges, lying, cheating, and stealing, and not have any consequences. It might sound like a common movie trope, but the first person someone messes with often winds up coming back into the picture at just the opportune moment. And in Jacob's life, the consuming fear that he had was of the person who was the very recipient of Jacob's biggest scheme, his brother Esau. Let's read this passage together from Genesis 32. I'd encourage you all to pause the video now if you don't have your Bible so that you can follow along with me. We are looking today at verses 1 to 21, but I'll be reading Genesis 32, verses 3 to 12. This is Genesis 32, starting in verse 3. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This is the word of the Lord. In many ways, this passage is somewhat of a part one, the build-up before the dramatic conclusion. We see Jacob and where he is at and what is consuming him. But we don't get to see what actually happens in his relationship with Esau until the next chapter. And while we know that this ultimately concludes in the two brothers meeting and reconciling, what we see in this passage on full display is the deep fear of Jacob. Fear of the person who he has swindled to such a great degree that he is willing to sacrifice so much in order to make up for it. In this passage, we see Jacob in a position we haven't seen him in before. We see him with his tail between his legs, so to speak. He was on his way to the promised land, but his relationship with Esau was the matter that still needed to be settled. He didn't need to do this in order to pass through. The fact of the matter is that he had to take a considerable detour in order to meet up with Esau. But this didn't matter. It wasn't a practical thing that had to be done. I'm sure we've all had a moment when we felt that unescapable feeling of unfinished business. Maybe not to the same magnitude as Jacob, but the feeling that there is something we need to say or do to someone else before we can actually move on. The truth is that fear is one of the most powerful and most controlling human emotions we can experience. We may be able to laugh at the funny names for somewhat obscure fears, but the deep-seated fears which we carry around are anything but funny. Jacob shows us that he is so paralyzed by his fear of Esau and what he could do that he is willing to give up all that he has previously held dear. Jacob had finally left Laban and was finally able to get going on his own, and he was on his way to the promised land, but a barrier blocked his path. No, this barrier was not physical, But it was spiritual. As soon as he had finally closed the chapter on the issues with Laban, the issues of the past with Esau came right back to the surface. Jacob's fear of his brother was paralyzing him to such a great degree that when the coast is finally clear, he stops. He sets up camp. He has unfinished business. Once he reached the place where he set up camp, which he declared to be God's, His next order of business was to send messengers to his brother. He sends his messengers telling them to say to Esau that Jacob has an ever-growing list of resources and possessions and that he wants to find favor in his sight. He doesn't just list off all these as a sort of, by the way, or like he's listing off his resume. He's providing this information in hopes that a deal could be made. It might be easy when we look at the story in totality and how things conclude, to believe that the purpose Jacob had for this interaction was in order to be reconciled to his brother. But really, when we look deeper at what Jacob actually does here, we see that this is really not his motivation. He's deeply afraid of him and realizes that this needs to be addressed, but still wants to resort to something he can do or a favorable bargain. He can arrange to make this happen. He isn't thinking that they just need to sit together, man to man, and talk through the wounds of the past and let bygones be bygones. No, he wants to send something valuable enough to say, I'm sorry, and to appease his guilty conscience. Jacob's action in this passage reads somewhat like that of a boyfriend or a husband who's got himself in serious trouble with a significant other. He said something wrong maybe forgot something, missed an anniversary or something, and now he's trying to dig himself out of a hole. But instead of sitting down and communicating or coming with a truly meaningful apology, he wants to just send a bouquet of flowers and a box of chocolates and hope everything can be forgotten. Jacob wants to restore something without doing the work of reconciliation. The response he hears back, though, is one that would probably frighten the strongest of us let alone the man who is already acting out of fear. The messengers report back that Esau, appreci- that not that Esau appreciated the jester and all is well, or even that he has a counteroffer and wants something else, but rather that he is on his way and he is not alone. He has 400 men with him. If this was depicted on television, this is the moment where the dramatic music would play and they'd cut to commercial break. It sounds like such a frightening, impending threat. So Jacob's mind quickly starts racing as to what he can do to deal with this. And true to form, he starts to think up the best way in which he can work to minimize the devastation. So he comes up with the idea to split his own people into two camps so that if Esau comes and attacks one, the other will be okay. This is his very own wives and children and everything that he holds dear. And he is trying to figure out how to get by without losing it all. Remember, Jacob didn't have to reach out to Esau at all. But since he did, in this moment, it seems like he has poked the bear. And now he is coming with army in tow. It is at this point where Jacob breaks down and reacts in one of the best ways we have seen thus far in his life he turns to God in prayer. In this moment, he is able to humble himself and admit before God that he is afraid and that he needs help. He realizes that he must lay a hold of the blessings which God has promised him and remember the ways in which God has already been faithful. He realizes in this moment that God is the only one that can deliver him. It is only through trusting in God that he will be able to escape unscathed from the hands of his brother. While we see this true prayer from Jacob's heart, and we see him turn to God with his weakness and fear, it doesn't stop him from carrying out his plan. He organizes all he has into different groups to act as presence to Esau. He instructed his people to tell Esau of his presence as they came, that they are from Jacob, and that Jacob was coming behind them. Jacob had come to the realization that he would have to face Esau, but he was setting up this meeting to be as favorable as possible. I don't know about you, but I'm likely to be in a much better mood after a series of important and costly gifts. This was Jacob's plan, and the way that he thought he could arrange for his encounter with Esau to have as much success as could be possible. The ending of this passage is actually quite sad and shows Jacob's desperation. We see him wish that perhaps, just just maybe, when Esau sees his face after receiving all his offerings, that maybe at this point he will accept him. It's hard to say if Jacob had truly changed his heart and motivation. He certainly was still very afraid, but he does recognize that he desires the acceptance of his brother. Then we see that as his plan has placed himself last, this leaves himself all alone for the last night in the camp. All of his family and all of his riches have gone on ahead in hopes of appeasing his cheated brother. And there he stays all by himself. And this closing picture really paints the idea of how much Jacob was willing to sacrifice because of his fear. He came to the point where because he was so paralyzed by his fears, he was willing to give up all the things he had schemed for worked and fought for in order to not have this lingering fear. So the question is, what do you do when you're so afraid that you, like Jacob, become willing to sacrifice the very things that God has promised you? In Jacob's case, this fear brought him to the position where he was willing to give up his possessions, splitting them up into two groups, anticipating attack, and then dividing them up as gifts for his estranged brother. But even more than that, in the way he refers to himself and to Esau, we see him giving up the blessing that he had fought for. He had fought to get all the blessings from his father. He had swindled his way into his birthright. He had cheated his way into the position of honor within the family. But yet in his all-consuming fear, he comes cowering to Esau and calls him his lord and refers to himself as his servant. I kinda wish at this point we get to see Esau's reaction to hearing these words from his brother because he knows he doesn't deserve these titles. I imagine him almost laughing and saying, Jacob, my servant? (sighs) He hasn't acted as my servant for a day of his life. But the reality is that his fear had brought him into this position and lowered him to this posture of servanthood. Jacob's fear had enslaved him to the point of forfeiting his blessing. The struggle of being willing to sacrifice what God has promised reminds me of a struggle I remember facing towards the end of high school, but certainly isn't unique to me as a Christian teen. I spent so much time developing a reputation with my friends as someone who was different. Everyone knew that I was a Christian, that I believed certain ways, and that there were certain things that I was unwilling to do. But the pressure to change that I felt came not from anyone else, but from myself and my own fear. Fear that I should at least be willing to try different things. And a fear that if I if I didn't, I might lose friends and lose any chance to be rebellious at all later. It's now or never. Now, I never fell down a path of heavy drinking or drug use or something like that. But in the end of high school, I started talking a little different, listening to different influences, and doing things which I had purposely avoided. I let my fear take away the reputation and the influence I had spent years creating. And the truth is that most of these friends I haven't talked to in years because of time and distance and moving in different ways, but I regret the way that I left and finished those relationships. I had stayed pretty true to myself and my faith and right at the last minute let my fears rob me a sum of God's blessings in my life. Fear is powerful and can be so destructive in the life of a believer. So what do we do? How can we as believers stand against these fears and not let them control us? Jacob's prayer in this chapter, in verses 9 through 12, give us some great reminders of what we should do when we are overcome by our fears. First, we can see that Jacob begins and ends his prayer by claiming God's promises to him in his life. Remembering what what God had promised to you personally and to us as believers is one of the strongest and best ways we can quiet our fears. There were two distinct things which God had promised Jacob, which he mentions in his prayer. We see that God had promised to bless him, and God has promised to protect him. And these are the things that Jacob needed to cling to To drown out his fears which were taking over. Even though he had done so much wrong to this point in his life and made so many mistakes, he still could rest assured knowing that he had the full blessing of God. In just the previous chapter when Jacob sees that he had lost the favor of Laban, God told him to return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. Genesis chapter 31 verse 3 God had been with him through every step of the way so far. And as he opens his prayer in the most distressed state we've seen him in, he remembers God's blessing and lays claim to it, saying, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. He may have cheated his way to the blessing from his father and be suffering the consequences of that, but you can't cheat your way into God's blessings. God was with him, and clinging to what he had promised him was the only way he could face this current obstacle. We also see that Jacob bookends his prayer with remembering another one of the ways God had promised to be with him. In Genesis 28, we see that Jacob has a dream which God speaks to him in, saying in verses 13 to 15, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land." for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. There's a lot of great promises in here for Jacob to cling to, but what he needs to be reminded of most is that God had promised to protect him and make him his offspring, make his offspring numerous. He closes his prayer in verse 12 by saying that, You said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea. In this moment, Jacob is fearing for his life and the lives of his many children. If God had promised to protect him and make his offspring numerous, surely he wouldn't allow for them to be taken or killed in an impending battle with Esau. Surely God would remember his promise of protection and not let any any harm come to him or his family, even if he himself wouldn't be spared. In your moments of most despair are the times you most need to remember that God is watching over you. I'm sure these promises to Jacob had never felt so real as they did at the moment when he is fearing for his life. They may have seemed abstract or distant, but in this time, as he is pouring his heart out to God, they couldn't be more real. I find that I get so caught up in the unknown that I forget what is known. When something uncertain, like... COVID-19 comes, I find myself so easily tricked into thinking that just because everything in the world seems different, then God must be different too. That he will have to work in some unknown, never seen before way to handle the current crisis. That somehow he isn't still working in the same ways and listening to and attending to our needs. It's so easy to feel broken right now, beat down by the disappointments, the uncertainties and the fears. In my lifetime, I have never felt broader society have such a sense of fear as I do in the year 2020. This isn't to say that there isn't a reason to be cautious and careful by any means, but when we have a relationship with Jesus, our fears shouldn't look like that of the world's. COVID-19 shouldn't be as scary to us as it is to others because we fear a God who is so much more powerful than a virus or anything else, which can make us afraid. He is still the same God, and the same promises he has given us to protect and bless are still ours to claim. You don't need to search for some new or fresh assurance when the reality that you have always had to cling to is still just as powerful as ever. Claiming God's promises to bless and protect is a powerful way to shut out fear. Jacob also had to remember how God had been faithful to him already. He had promised to be with him for sure, but he had also proven it to Jacob in several powerful ways. In verse 10, we see Jacob reach a point of humility in which we hadn't seen before. He was finally able to recognize his own unworthiness, saying that he is not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love. Very often, Real recognition of of how God is in control and providing involves coming to grips with how unworthy and desperate we are. And Jacob is finally in this place. He knows that he hasn't lived a life that is deserving of the ways God has blessed him, and that God's provision are really in spite of how he has lived. Earlier in Genesis 28, God had told Jacob that he would be with him and not leave him until he has done. he had promised and now jacob can reflect and see that the amazing ways that god had blessed him jacob recognizes the way god had worked powerfully in him remembering that for with only my staff i crossed the jordan and now i have become two camps he says in verse he says in verse 10 over the last number of years god has allowed jacob to be very bountiful producing many children and gathering a large fleet of livestock and possessions. He had come with nothing, and now he has so much that he can divide them up into two separate camps. He had to remember God's faithfulness in his life and that how much he had been blessed with, despite his unworthiness. I have found in my own life that often I don't fully recognize how God has been faithful in certain seasons of my life until they are over, and I am faced with the next challenge Or difficult decision. When that fear of what's next, even if it's not your brother's wrath, when that fear comes in, the surest way to conquer it is by stopping for a moment and looking back. I have to do this, reflecting back on how God has led me through and using this to remember that he will be faithful with me in my present circumstances and help me with whatever comes my way. It's so easy to get caught up in the moment that we forget the past. And as the saying goes, this is when we are doomed to repeat it. The best way to break the cycle of crises, fears, and panic in our lives is to remember God's provision and his steadfast faithfulness. The last part of Jacob's prayer, which can instruct us on what to do when we are so overcome by our fears that we sacrifice what God has promised, we see in verse 11. We have already looked at how Jacob remembered God's promises of blessing and protection, and he recognized his unworthiness and remembered God's provision. And now we see that he seeks God's help. Undoubtedly, the single most important thing any of us can do when we are overcome by fear is to turn to God and let our fears be replaced by a fear, a holy reverence, respect, and love in the God of the universe. The crux of this passage is Jacob's fear of Esau and we see all th- that we see all throughout, And we finally see him admit this in his own words, in the second part of verse 11. Jacob admits, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. He is able to come to grips with the reality that this is what is consuming him. The fear that his brother, who he has wronged, is coming to attack him and all of his family. That the person whose blessing he ruined is now coming to ruin his blessing. Admitting your fears to God may seem pointless, given that he already knows them, but he still wants us to share those. He still wants us to say those. There is so much meaning in honestly coming to grips with your own weakness and desperation. He wasn't asking for God's deliverance just as a top-up, as a little extra boost of power and security to make himself sleep better. He needed God's deliverance, desperately, because he was drowning in fear. His own fear of man is what caused him to come to grips with the fact that God's deliverance is the only thing that could save him. Nothing of his own power would succeed. Just like Jacob, you must place your fear in God alone, rather than people, to be able to lay a hold of the promises he has for you. There are many things which we see are true of fearing God, which aren't true of any other human fear. In Psalm 111 verse 10, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. The Psalmist here, who many believe to be David, shows us that fearing God leads to wisdom and understanding. If we assume that David is the author, this speaks super powerfully contrasted against David's life, a life not incredibly different than Jacob's. Both men were blessed by God and used by him but made a lot of terrible blunders along the way. After a lifetime spent running for his life and facing huge threats and obstacles time and time again, he declares that fearing God is what leads to wisdom. We also see from scripture in Luke 1 verse 50, Mary declares in the Magnificat that his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary, one of the characters in scripture, faced with the most huge task, recognizes that God has mercy on those who fear him, and that this is true throughout all generations. How powerful is that? Similarly, Peter declares in Acts 10, verse 35, that in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Fearing God is equated with what is acceptable to God. Our human fears are certainly not that. As they cause us to panic to lose sight of what is true and to depend on our own understanding but fearing god is what is acceptable in acts 10 we see the powerful truth that when we live trusting in the spirit we are heirs with christ and we have received the spirit of adoption as sons into god's family the reverse is that what we don't have as believers is the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear When we have been adopted into God's family, the spirit that is in us is not one which allows us to fear what is going on, but causes us to fear the one who we belong to. One of the verses which we were teaching the kids about a little bit ago and has continually come back to me is 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. When we have come to put our fear in God and have a relationship with him because of the work of Christ on the cross, Now that spirit, which we have, is not one of fear. That has been replaced. When we are new creations, there isn't a need to be afraid, for we are now belonging to the one who can cast out all fear. Do you know if you've received this gift of the spirit? Can you say with certainty that you have received the spirit of adoption as a son into God's family? This gift of the spirit, which is not a fear, can only come through faith in Jesus Christ. The only true way to have a spirit which is fully based in a fear that can conquer all your other fears is by trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, by accepting the gift which he died on the cross to pay for our sins to give us. If you don't have this gift of the spirit or don't know, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Pastor Paul or myself or any of the church leaders would love to talk with you about this. This gift of the Spirit is the most amazing gift any of us will ever receive. Far greater than the gifts Jacob wanted to send to Esau to appease his brother. This gift is life-changing. Now, I don't want anyone to misinterpret that I'm saying you aren't truly saved if sometimes you get afraid of things. This is perfectly normal and human. But this cannot be what we cling to. We must cling to Christ. For he has replaced our fear with power and love and self-control. And the good news is that this is not our own weak and failing power and love. It is that of the Almighty God. Scripture talks a lot about how we will be known by our fruit. And I believe one of the most obvious pieces of fruit in our lives is our relationship to fear. Is fear of the unknown or of someone else a failure of a global pandemic, of death, are these fears what we are showing to others and what is controlling our lives? Or is a deep, secure, rested fear in the God who knows everything and and loves us more than we could imagine, is this what we show? Do we spend more of our time worrying about what is unknown or in remembering the Lord's faithfulness and clinging to his promises? Our job as believers, I believe, has never been so critical. When the world is falling apart around us and finding new things on a daily basis to bring us down and to question, to get upset and feel depressed, we must be a light that shines a little brighter, the voice that speaks a little louder, because where we have our fear is exponentially more powerful than all of the imposing fears that the world brings forward. We need to be reminded of that and be encouraged to show that through all that we say and all that we do. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear God, I thank you so much for this passage which we can look to and learn from. I thank you for the life of Jacob which we can learn so much from and have throughout this series. And God, I pray today that we would all examine where we're putting our fear. I pray that we would all think of the ways in which we are fearing people, the ways in which we are fearing our circumstances, the ways we are fearing the stuff around us, and that we put that in you. That we change our fear of things to a fear of God. Lord, we know, like Jacob, we need to remember your faithfulness. We need to cling to your promises. And we need to look to you. We need to look to you for help. I pray that each of us would do that in the way that we need to. Be reminded of these truths and help us all to apply them to our lives. Pray that you'll be with us this week. Watch over us. Give us a good time and help us to remember you each and every day. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. If you are joining us for the first time today, please let us know by commenting below. I hope that today's message serves as a powerful reminder to you to not let the fears of the world cause you to sacrifice what God has promised you and reminded you that fear of God is the most powerful thing you could cling to. If there's someone in your life who'd be encouraged by this message, share it with them. And as always, for more messages of hope, visit www.gracebc.ca. God bless and have a great week.